This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the It's All Paul Newman's Fault episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Emily Peck of Axios is also here. Hello. Along with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we all know that we have Paul Newman to blame for the ridiculous surge in watch prices. If we haven't talked about that, we can talk about that some other time. But yeah, it's <laughs> the, basically the Rolex collectability thing is all Paul Newman's fault. But that is not the only thing that is all Paul Newman's fault. There's something else that is all Paul Newman's fault, which we are going to talk about when we also talk about Patagonia being sold this week. That is coming up along with discussions of the rail strike that wasn't and also the sale of Figma to Adobe. And if you're a Slate Plus member, we answer your question of how do I work out what to cook with all of this stuff. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so I really want to talk about this Patagonia thing. Are you down for that? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so there are two dueling narratives going on in this story. There was the... Oh my God, this is amazing. Yvonne Chouinard has donated a multi-billion dollar company to climate charities and it's all going to be owned by the planet now. And isn't that awesome? Versus, oh my God, Yvonne Chouinard has taken advantage of a massive tax loophole to not pay any kind of gift tax, estate tax, capital gains tax, or any anything else. And how rude of him. Can they both be true, Elizabeth? Well, I think they, they can both be true, but we need to back up and sort of explain what happened. You know, Patagonia is a $3 billion company. The founder has decided that he's effectively giving it away. So he's put 2%, I think, of the shares in 51c3 nonprofit. And then... And there's not a 51c3, it's just a trust, I think. Yeah. Well, so he, so the, he's paying gift tax on that, but it's a tiny bit, it's like $17 million. Yeah, but most of it's going into a C4, which is an organization that's allowed to make unlimited political donations. So he doesn't get the income tax deduction from it, but he does get a discount on the estate tax. He doesn't pay any estate tax at all. Yeah. Even And I think this whole distinction between if he'd given it to a 501c3, he would have got even more tax rates is kind of not true. When you give billions of dollars to 501c3s, like, for instance, Warren Buffett has been doing for many years with the Gates Foundation, you rapidly roll through whatever maximum deduction you can get in terms of income. So it doesn't really make any difference. Yeah, it, either way, it's basically the same. You get to pay no tax. And the critique, which I kind of agree with, which is that this is just a failure of policy because you're basically letting people opt out of supporting the government but giving them ways to lobby the government, buy elections, and use politics and money to a similar effect without paying taxes. So. I just want to jump in and say that the headline on this story that I read b before we get into the weeds was basically Patagonia's CEO gives company a way to save the climate. I just feel like that should be underlined. <laughs> that was the main thrust of the first day of reporting. 
CEO gives company away. Right. So that was an amazing little piece of PR, right? So what happened was the Patagonia gave the exclusive to David Gales, our friend at the New York Times, and gave him huge amounts of access. They were like, they were sending a photographer to photograph the video announcement by Chouinard, the founder. And David wrote a really, really positive article. And in fact... And this is, I think, the thing that really annoyed a bunch of people. He drew an explicit distinction with Bar Side, who also gave his company to a 501c4. This is the right-wing billionaire who founded a company called Triplight. He gave it to a 501c4 called Marble Hill Trust or something like that, which then turned around and sold it for $1.6 billion to a private equity company in the UK. And that had been covered by the New York Times as a great scandal. And David was, David Gels was very aware of the sort of double standard going on. And he was like, well, on the one hand, the trip light donation was a total tax dodge. But on the other hand, the Patagonia donation isn't. And then when people started looking at it more closely, everyone was like, no, they're both 501c4s. They're both exactly the same. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is just people making judgments about where the money is going because seeds donation went in part to fight climate change activists. So, so they, they get to cancel each other out, right? Basically, yeah. yeah. And no, I do think, I mean, this is a very clear case of liberal bias in the press, right? If you give it to left-wing charities, then everyone's like, oh my God, you're amazing. And if you give it to right-wing charities, everyone's like, oh my God, you're terrible. Yes, but by the second day the so-called left-wing press was also making that criticism. Right? They were making the criticism, but like it didn't get a million hits in the first three hours like the Gellers piece. And I think in general, what we have here is a situation where Patagonia's customers are generally pretty environmentally conscious, and they're going to be very happy about the idea that all of their profits are going to environmental charities. And this is good PR for Patagonia. I don't. I think the second day quibbles are not going to take much of the sheen off this donation. One thing I'm still confused about, actually, in the parallels between Triplight and Patagonia, Triplight was sold and still operates. Patagonia was it sold? It's all the same people working there, running it. Nothing's really. Yeah, and I think the family still. I don't understand that. Some piece. of the voting rights, so it's not. They're still involved. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So that, that it is a difference. It doesn't make any difference on the tax side of things, but it does make mm -hmm. a difference on the operating side of things. Barside, or Seed, I don't know how to pronounce him, is is no longer involved in Triplight. He sold the company to some other private equity firm that is now operating it. So no more control of the company. The Schuenard family, on the other hand, is still in control of Patagonia. Obviously, in both cases, the employees of the company are still working for the company. So their day-to-day -day doesn't really change mm -hmm. at all. But yeah, the Patagonia family still controls Patagonia, the company. And we should also say that both Triplight and Patagonia are continuing to pay corporate income taxes and all of the taxes that they owe. It's not like they've become charities. The difference is that Patagonia is now effectively... It's not owned by a charity, but it's giving all of its profits to charity. With Triplight, it's giving all of its profits to a private equity firm. And what happened was there was just a big $1.6 billion chunk of cash that went from that private equity firm to the 501c4. So now when you buy your Patagonia fleece, 
the profits go to climate change? Yes. Well, to trying to prevent climate change. To trying to prevent climate change. <laughs> and when you're a customer of Triplight, it's just some private equity peeps that get yeah, cash. Yeah. At this point, in terms of the future of trying to get more Republican <laughs> judges on the Supreme Court or whatever it is that Leonard Leo is up to these days, the fortunes of Triplight don't matter. They sold the entire company. They don't care what happens to Triplight anymore. They've got their $1.6 billion. Okay. And then in both cases, the CEO doesn't have to pay any kind of inheritance. I don't actually, now that that I'm breaking it down, inheritance tax, they're still alive. So basically, exactly. So that's the really big tax dodge that they both avoided is that under U.S. law, you basically get to give away $12 million in your lifetime. And anything beyond that, you have to pay a 40% gift tax or inheritance tax or estate tax or whatever you want to call it, right? And Gifts are all taxable once you pass that $12 million limit. They've managed to basically just blow through that and give away gifts which are worth vastly more than $12 million and not have to pay any gift tax at all. And there's a very good reason why this gift tax exists, which is that when you start a company with founders' equity, the equity doesn't cost you anything, basically. Your cost basis in that company is zero. And... If you don't take out profits, if you just leave the profits in the company rather than taking them out as dividends or salary, then you don't pay any taxes on any of those profits of the company. And it's still your money. You still own all of that money. You just have never paid any tax on it. And then eventually, the idea is, eventually you die. This is kind of inevitable. And so at some point, either at or before the point at which you die, you need to do something with this company. You need to give it to someone or sell it to someone. And at that point, when you give it to someone or sell it to someone, then all of those accumulated profits and all of that accumulated value is taxable. And so that's the idea. That's kind of why... That's the stated reason why we don't, what are they called, illiquid capital gains, unrealized mm-hmm. capital gains. It's because like eventually they will become realized capital gains and then you will pay tax on them. But what we've now seen in both of these cases is a way to avoid paying any tax ever on those unrealized capital gains. Yep. And this is why uh, progressives want higher corporate taxes. But that wouldn't change anything, right? Like, that wouldn't solve this problem. It counterbalances it a little bit. I don't think it solves it. It doesn't solve it at all. Like, in in neither of these cases would higher corporate taxes have solved – like, assuming that you still have a billionaire who founds a company worth a billion dollars and that billion dollars has been created and is value that should be taxed, like, higher corporate tax – like. Corporations don't ever pay tax on their enterprise value or their market cap or anything like that. So higher corporate taxes on corporate income don't affect that. We don't know the intentions here of either of these men. Like the primary purpose of these actions doesn't seem to be as a tax dodge necessarily. Like that doesn't seem clear to me. It seems like... In the case of Triplight, if you just look at the sequencing, it's very clear, right? He could have sold... Triplight to the private equity company for $1.6 billion, paid capital gains tax on the $1.6 billion, and then given all of his post-tax proceeds to charity. And then the mm-hmm. post-tax proceeds would have been like 40% less. Mm-hmm. Instead, he gave Triplight to the charity that turned around and sold the company five seconds later. And by doing so, that donation was worth 40% more. Okay, but these two men are then exploiting a loophole to donate more money to the cause they want to donate to. Yes. So 
That's a policy failure. I think that's what Elizabeth said to start. Yeah, the insinuation is that allowing the deduction for C4 donations is the policy failure. It's not that they're taking Mm -hmm. advantage of it. Although, frankly, there is this thing called the Newman's own exception, which is a little bit nerdy even for slate money. But in principle, this could be doable even with a C3 donation, right? So, like, the loophole exists either way. What's the Newman's own exception? (laughs) You're going to have to tell us. All right, I'm going to have to tell you now. So Paul Newman set up a for-profit company called Newman's Own and gave all of the profits of that company to a charity that he set up. And then when he died, he wanted to give the company, Newman's Own, to the charity. But 501c3s, at the time, were not allowed to own for-profit companies. Um. And so there was this whole worry that basically the Paul Newman Foundation or the Sundance Foundation or whatever the hell it was called would have to sell Newman's own because it wasn't allowed, because charities aren't allowed to own for-profit companies. And then so what happened, There was an exception was written into the law. And as far as I can make out, Newman's Own is literally the only company that has ever taken advantage of this exception. <laughs> but Newman's Own is now allowed to be owned by the foundation. And the idea is basically that if the foundation doesn't include any family members and is genuinely independent and yada, yada, there's a few different criteria. But it is now possible to donate a for-profit company to a 501c3. So it's not really this whole distinction between C3s and C4s. Like, it's not a big deal. It's more about political activity. Determines what the organization can do. This is all Paul Newman's fault. It's all Paul Newman's fault. C4s are allowed to (laughs) directly give money to candidates and to campaign for candidates directly. But C3s can be political. There's no shortage of politically. There's a lot of of gray area there. That's why a lot of political organizations have both a C3 and a C4 arm. Mm -hmm. So when C3 will do voter registration, the C4 will donate to specific candidates. I mean, my my big thing is like the tax dodge is the tax dodge either way, right? And and, And I can see why people get a little bit more upset about giving it to a C4 because they're like, you are trying to use your billions to influence democratic institutions. And that seems even worse than giving it to save emaciated donkeys, you know, whatever, right? But like, either way, you're supporting your pet cause and not paying any tax on your gains. You're using your money to influence government policymaking while starving the government of the funding it needs to do effective policymaking. So, so, so Emily, yes. Emily, have we now persuaded you that, that this Patagonia donation is a terrible thing and you're now opposed to it? I mean, I read a quote today, I think in Dealbook, where they said, we're letting people opt out of the support of the government the rest of us have to participate in. And I feel like we've talked this to death already. Rich people want to be governments unto themselves. And this seems like an offshoot of that. There was this wonderful quote in the original Gellis piece where Yvonne Chouinard was like, they say that I'm a billionaire, but I'm not really a billionaire. I don't have a billion dollars in the bank and I drive a battered old Subaru or whatever. And you're like, no, you're a billionaire. You can pr- <laughs> I can prove that you're a billionaire because you're like so really trying very hard to Warren avoid these taxes. Buffett kind of persona. Buffett, you know, famously <laughs> bought himself a private jet and called it the indefensible. Um <laughs> And and Junard, like, you know, he's not a big spender, but he's definitely doing that billionaire thing of tax avoidance. And what's interesting as background is Patagonia has always been kind of a, a good employer type company. Like they're they a very good employer. Policies yeah. during the pandemic when, you know, workers got very 
agitated and everyone quit everything. I spoke to Patagonia and they said almost no one left. Like people are generally happy there. They have on-site childcare. They're in Southern California or Northern California, somewhere in California. And, and they have this thing where like, if it's a really good surf day, then everyone gets the day yeah. off and can just go <laughs> surfing. Oh, one question I had related to that is like, okay, they were a really good company. Why not just become a nonprofit? They could be a B Corp. I don't. They are a B Corp. Yeah, they, B-Corp. Have, they have been yeah. a B Corp for, uh, for many years. Okay. Like, why can't they just do that instead of all this shenanigans? I, I think it's hard for a for-profit company to become a nonprofit. Although we have seen it in media, there has been a few like local newspapers and stuff like that that have managed to sort of switch over to becoming a nonprofit. I think it was one of the options on the table. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, and we would need to like have background conversations with Patagonia's lawyers. So it would be interesting to see whether one of the reasons they decided not to go down that route was precisely that doing so would involve a greater tax liability. I guess the non-cynical way to look at it was would be like, oh, that way we would have more money to fight climate change. Yeah, I mean, if your main priority in life is fighting climate change and you just want to maximize the amount of money that goes into fighting climate change, then obviously at the margin, you'd rather do that than pay taxes. And so if there's a legal way of getting more money to your pet cause and sending less money to the government, that's good, right? That's something you want. And mutatis mutandis for triplet. Yeah, and you could even make the argument on either side, right or left. I'll do left. If I give my money to the government, they're going to use some of it on carbon emissions that I don't want to happen. Like maybe they're going to do energy subsidies this year or something. And I don't want my money, my tax money going to big oil. (laughs) You could sort of, you could paint, you can make yourself the ethical player and say like, I'm not giving my, my ethical money to the unethical U.S. government. That's probably what the trip light guy might think too. I, I sort of assume I do think in general it's not just billionaires who don't like paying taxes. It's basically everyone. There is a general assumption built into society that everyone pays the taxes that they have to pay and no one voluntarily pays a whole bunch of taxes that they don't want to pay, right? And that's what we're seeing in both cases here is like people working absolutely legally within the tax code to minimize their tax burden because that's kind of what everyone does no one sort of like when they're filling out their taxes gets to that line on the form saying and would you like to donate a few more bucks to the government this year and says (laughs) okay i'll throw in an extra 50 bucks because i like you guys yeah but it's harder for regular people to escape taxes like they take them directly out of your paycheck (laughs) you know what i mean like we can't do a lot of it's just it's i think a lot of the emotion around it is just the perceived unfairness. And it's not just perceived, it's, it just is. The argument on the other side is that neither of these men got personal benefit from those billions, right? They gave the billions away. They didn't find those billions in their checking account one day. They can't leave those billions to their children. They have literally given up control, well, not entirely given up control because they still do kind of have a bunch of influence over how the money is spent, but it's definitely not available to them if they want to go and buy a Picasso tomorrow. So if it's not their money anymore, why should they pay tax on it? I mean, I feel like I've kind of already hinted at the answer here, which is that societally speaking, if you make a bunch of money at some point, you should pay tax on it. But maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe like the implicit principle 
behind the tax code is you can make as much money as you like and you don't have to pay tax on it just so long as you don't show a sort of personal benefit from it and you don't get the money in your own bank account. I don't. So, that doesn't. That's not tracking with me. We all benefit from living in the in the United States, and we all contribute to the cause through our taxes. Isn't that part of it? That is part of it. In theory, that is part of it. Let's move on and talk about train strikes because I think <laughs> this is much more of a sort of real thing in the world. Like we can talk about theoretical billions going into charities, but. We avoided a major train strike this week, and I want you to walk me through what was at stake, both in terms of the economy and in terms of the workers on the railroads. This week, contract negotiations between freight rail companies and their unionized workers came to a head, culminating in this like marathon 20-hour negotiating sesh in Washington, D.C., where the Biden administration essentially facilitated a deal and averted a railroad strike, which would have been, by all accounts, catastrophic for the economy because a lot of stuff vital to the functioning of the country travels by train. Like, I don't think most people are giving a lot of thought to freight trains these days, but they're vitally important because they can carry a lot of stuff and they can carry a lot of dangerous stuff. So chlorine that's used to purify the water or oil or gas, like dangerous stuff gets transported on the rails. There's not an easy alternative. And the Railroad Association put out a stat that was picked up everywhere that said two billion. it would cost the economy $2 billion a day if the railroads shut down. And what was really interesting to me and why I still wanted to talk about it, even though the crisis was averted, was the reason that the parties couldn't come to an agreement and the sticking point in the negotiations wasn't pay, although they got a nice raise, the workers eventually. The sticking point was work-life balance. Of course, no railroad workers didn't say we need better work-life balance, but that is precisely what was happening. These Freight train companies for years and years have really worked to become more streamlined, scaled back, and efficient. And they did that on the backs of these workers. They cut the number of workers in their companies, the number of workers who ride the trains, and that meant not a lot of time off for any of these mostly men. There are a lot of stories about guys who couldn't go to the doctor, who missed family events, holidays, who got even sicker because they couldn't take the time to go to the doctor. Not only couldn't they take off, but they were penalized for taking off. There's a quote in the Times, I think on Friday, where one guy said, we just don't want anyone to get fired for being sick anymore. So that all was pretty interesting to me and seems like a more widespread problem going beyond these 115,000-odd workers. One question which I'm interested in here is there are, what, like three or four major railroads in America, and they Uh all kind of negotiated collectively, and all of their employees get the same deal? Is that it? Yeah, so there are— It sounds very German— It's very German, and it dates back to the early 20th century for the United States because you think the railways are important now. They were really important then. And there's federal law regulating how unions can bargain and setting kind of like breaks so that strikes don't happen because they can be so catastrophic. There was like a number of steps that the administration, the White House, can take to sort of avert the strike that the Biden administration 
took, which is if they can't come to an agreement on their own, then the president appoints a commission that like talks to both sides and comes up with a proposal, all this kind of government interference. But to be clear, when we're talking about the science here, on one side, you have all of the employees of all of the different railroads. And on the other side, you have all of the different railroads. Yes. So in order to get an agreement, you need to get Number one, the employees to agree, which presumably they're all represented by the same union. But number two, you need to get each of the separate railroads to agree. Yes. And to clarify, there are 12 unions. Oh, there are 12 unions? There are 12 unions. Two of the unions represent about half of the workers. So there are two really big unions and then a bunch of little unions. Oh, and my now, God. So you have, you have 12 unions on one side and you have however many railroads on the other side. I can see why this negotiating session went on for 20 hours. I mean, that's <laughs> trying to get that many different parties to agree on anything is hard. Yeah, that's true. That is hard. But the really the sticking point was this leave policy. It's really wild. They did not want to concede on that. And the Biden board said, we don't want to get involved. Like if you read their proposal, they just say, we don't think we should be involved. This should be settled like company by company, workforce by workforce. And the unions were like, hell no. <laughs> I think we need to sort of draw out what you mean by work-life balance, because I think especially if you don't, you're not familiar with that industry, you sort of don't realize what specifics you're talking about. And so when you talk about paid leave, these railroads are basically telling the workers, you can take a sick day, but you're going to be in a different city because you're at work and we're not going to pay to get you back home or get you to your doctor. So it seems like, you know, what they're asking for are privileges than most other industries you, you sort of get anyway. And so that's part of it. But also the private equity companies that overwhelmingly own these railroads and have Berkshire a policy. Hathaway. Don't forget Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> yeah. Them too. Basically just have decided that it's cheaper for them to pay overtime all the time instead of just instituting these, you know, what, what in my opinion are very stingy sick leave policies. So, I, you know, my sympathy is definitely with the worker side, but I can also see why private equity companies were refusing to budge on it. Yeah, when I say work-life balance, I, I mean, this is way beyond what you might think of. I was sort of being cute, but yeah. basically there are no paid sick days at these companies. Instead, They're not asking they, for free yoga lessons. Right. Work. Instead, they give you points. If you have to take an unscheduled day off, you get penalized with points. And if you accumulate a certain number of points, then you get penalized. They tell you you can't work for a certain number of hours. And that level increases until finally you are fired. So like someone was telling me, like you could take a day off, an unscheduled day off to attend, I don't know, your son's championship soccer game. If you get the flu at that game and need three more days off, you will get fired from these companies. So do you understand the economics here. I'm fascinated by the way in which this turned out to be the big sticking point. There wasn't pay. That somehow giving decent sick leave benefits to employees seems as though it's significantly more expensive and or disruptive to the railroads than paying quite a lot of money to those employees. My guess is, since they were thinking of it as an overtime versus benefit situation, that overtime is a variable. It changes depending on demand and need and things like that. And if they commit to paying, you know, paid sick leave, 
that's a fixed expense that they already know what it's going to be. So it's in some ways just a bet about which number is going to be higher. I don't quite see that. I mean, I see in my mind it's basically the same thing, right? That if someone takes sick leave, then someone else winds up having to work overtime to do that person's job. Aren't they two sides of the same coin? Okay, so what's going on here is these companies cut the number of employees by like 30% over the past, I think, seven years or something. And they basically, for the folks, the workers who ride the trains, you can only ride a certain number of hours under regulations, right? You can't have people, conductors or engineers on the trains falling asleep and stuff. So there are some regulations around how long you can work. But with less staff... So then all these workers are on kind of like a list, a rotation, like you work and then you go to the bottom of the list and then the list works up again, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. you're sort of like on call waiting to get called again. And it's cheaper is my understanding for the rail companies to just have fewer workers and the lists are shorter. So you just get less downtime and more on call time. On the one hand, there's a limit to how many hours you can work. It sounds like, you know, aircraft crews and that kind of stuff that they have these limits which are baked into the contract but on the other hand i guess the railroad companies are basically trying to keep people basically at that limit and not give them more time off between shifts and in which yeah they there's could, less they time off use. less yeah. time off between shifts and more time just on call And if you're not available to work when you're on call, that's I think you're penalized for that as well. One of the things that I kind of weirdly suspect in the back of my head, and I haven't done any reporting on this, so I don't know, is that there's a pandemic aspect to this too. Two things happened in the pandemic. One was the freight volumes went up, the people started buying more stuff, more goods. And so goods wound up becoming a much bigger proportion of GDP than services. That's since sort of reverted. But the other thing that happened during the pandemic was the supply chains became much less predictable. What you had pre-pandemic were these incredibly efficient supply chains where everyone kind of knew where every container was going to be months and months in advance and everything was very smooth and efficient. And all of that just kind of got blown up overnight. And when you're running a railroad moving hundreds of thousands of containers across the country, like when it's smooth and predictable, then you can shed your people in a kind of smooth and predictable way. When the pandemic hits and good volumes go up, good volumes go down, some goods just don't appear at all because they're stuck on a ship or they never left China or whatever it is, then, yeah, the work of the railroad workers becomes inherently much more unpredictable. And what the companies need is a lot more flexibility they need to be like oh shit we need you here now and that kind of ability to send workers on very short notice to certain places because that's what's needed right now and it wasn't predictable it's obviously it's bad for the workers in terms of that work-life balance but you can kind of see how the shadow of the pandemic lies behind this dispute oh yeah absolutely i mean in all the union statements and at least one worker I spoke to was like, we gave them everything in the pandemic. We worked so hard. There was so much more work to do than usual. Our colleagues got sick. Our families got sick. People died. Like that emotional stress also adds to it from the pandemic. Let's move on to the big M&A transaction of the week, which is that Adobe has announced that it is buying 
Figma. Elizabeth, do you use Figma? I do, actually. And do you use it because it's like better and cheaper than Adobe? Is it a it classic if, disruptive company? It is if you're if you're working on UX stuff and you're you're doing product design, it's fantastic. And and I read somewhere and this was a couple of months ago that Adobe executives were getting annoyed because their own employees were using Figma for presentations <laughs> instead of Adobe's actual competitive software. Yeah, Ad- Adobe has a has a direct competitor to Figma called XD, which no one uses and everyone hates. Yes. Um, but it also has an indirect competitor to Figma, which is called Illustrator, which is a very you know fully featured and very expensive piece of software. And up until Figma came along, basically anyone wanting to do this kind of thing would go into Illustrator and do a bunch of work in a kind of clunky, crappy interface. And then, most importantly, couldn't really collaborate very easily. Imagine going back to the days of sending Word files back and forth, you know, that kind of thing. Everyone was using, you know, file.final.2.com. Yeah, yeah. Initials. Nobody's, nobody's using Illustrator anymore, like, you know, for complex projects because it's just... It's not very intuitive. The collaboration tools suck. Yeah, it's exactly. Not- it's it's just it's basically impossible in Illustrator to have two different people working on the same file at the same time. And when it's a big file and you have big teams all trying to work on different parts of the same thing, that's not acceptable. Yeah, that's why they created Adobe XD, but it's just not better. <laughs> it's, it, well, it's worse and it's uh, cheap and it's you know it, it's a minimum viable product. And meanwhile, Figma has come along, and Figma was founded specifically to address this problem of Adobe being crap. And there's any number of interviews with Figma Sounders basically saying, we are here to replace Adobe because Adobe is terrible and we are going to build something better. There's another company called Canva that I think is competitive with other parts of Adobe's suite and is also getting traction for much the same reason. You can use it without much technical knowledge, and it's more intuitive and it's collaborative. So what we have here is a very classic case of genuine disruption. We have something which is cheaper, which is maybe not as fully featured, but is more convenient and easier to use and people like it more. And nine times out of 10, when I hear the word like disrupt, I'm like, you are using that wrong. There's no one being disrupted here. But in this case, I think it's actually, it's correct that Figma was a genuine disruptive threat to Adobe. And being a venture-funded startup, it was also losing lots of money. And right now is a terrible time for venture-funded startups to raise money. And so this was a problem for Figma. And what's more, they'd already gone through seven rounds of fundraising. They did a seed round and then an A, B, C, D, and E round. The last E round was $200 million. And they still looked at the IPO market and said, we're not going to be able to go public right now. You know, the, the IPO window is shut. There's not going to be a Series F, you know, certainly not one that isn't a massive down round and hugely dilutive. Where are we going to be able to find the money to continue to grow? After seven rounds of fundraising, I can tell you one thing. In fact, after six rounds of fundraising, I looked this up on on PitchBook, VCs have a majority of the stock. So even if the founder doesn't want to sell, ultimately, the board at that point is controlled by investors. And one of the things that investors always had in the back of their mind was like, we don't need to IPO because if push comes to shove, we can always just sell to Adobe. 
Yeah, they want an exit, and this is the window. It's not, I'm not sure they could have waited that much longer. It just strikes me as this is the fail state. This is what happens when a company fails to really achieve the kind of profitability it needs in the time it has available. And maybe they the amount of time they had suddenly got a lot shorter than they thought it was. But this is not good because like their whole purpose was to go up against Adobe and now they've been bought by Adobe. And on some level, Adobe would have been happy to pay $20 billion for them and just shut them down. Now they're not going to shut them down. But this is like a, a competitive disruptive threat, which now is no longer competitive because it's owned by them. Yeah, I mean, I think some founders do really think about it. I'm going to build this great company, and then if we find a values aligned partner, a sale is fine. But, I don't but know that, clearly, the values are not aligned. They, they were like Adobe was the big enemy all along. Well, competitively, yes, but in terms of vision for what they want for products, they might be more aligned than products would indicate. I mean, isn't this how it works? <laughs> We've talked about like in the nonprofit world, a little nonprofit will try out a little pilot program and then the U.S. government swoops in and does the pilot program on a nationwide level. And isn't that great because these little nonprofits are little incubators. Well, isn't, isn't the business world maybe, the tech sector maybe a similar kind of thing where these startups are basically little incubators where people can like run free and be creative and do disruptive things outside of a big footed corporation that ruins everything anyway. And then they can't really afford to do that forever and stay out on their own forever. So then the big company swoops in and then the little company can survive. I've tried to raise money before and I've never been in a pitch meeting where somebody didn't ask me ultimately who could potentially buy the company. You know, it's it's not always what do you think your IPO scenario looks like? So I feel like the difference in this case is that Adobe is a monopoly. And monopolies shouldn't be allowed to quash competition by buying it. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, if that's the case, why is there no antitrust noise about it? I would bet that there is going to be antitrust noise. I think that there's going to be a bunch of whatever sort of rock, paper, scissors game that the FTC and the DOJ play when these kind of things happen. I never quite understand how it's determined which one gets these. But probably the FTC is going to want it, and they're going to want it for exactly that reason, which is that Lena Khan, who runs the FTC, is very keen that tech monopolies should not be able to grow by acquiring their competitors or by acquiring anyone, really. Like, once you're a monopoly, stop buying people. That's basically the rule she wants to implement. Now, I'm not saying that she'll be able to block it. She might file suit against it and then lose that suit. But I do suspect that there will be some kind of a suit. Yeah, I think it depends on how they choose to categorize Adobe or in what sector, because the Adobe products kind of sit in a sector of design and collaboration tools but they really own the design piece of that. Right. And there are, there are a number of other companies that, that integrate with Adobe because they have to be part of the collaboration process or the product development process. And I think if you view Adobe as being solely in that design space, I feel like them acquiring Figma is not going to be a candidate for antitrust. Why not? Because the, if they have a monopoly in the design space and Figma's in the design space, why is that not? I, I don't think that there's a discrete design space that's that tiny. I think it really is part of a larger set of software that you would use to build products. You're saying that Adobe is not a monopoly? Adobe, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it is. 
I, I, I mean, talking to everyone I know in, in that space who uses Adobe products, like they're like, of course, Adobe is a monopoly. Everyone has to use it. It's the standard. We hate it, but we feel like we have to. I think if you're a big corporate company, maybe. I think it's similar to people who have to use Microsoft collaboration products Absolutely. now, it's even 100%. though they don't think that they're great. It's they I, get grandfathered in. Totally. And Microsoft has a monopoly, too. And Microsoft isn't allowed to, like, buy G Suite via acquisition. Like, if Google decided to sell Google Docs to Microsoft, of course that would be blocked. And the harm to consumers is what, Felix? The harm to consumers is that if Adobe buys Figma and then just folds Figma into the creative suite and says, you need to buy a subscription to the creative suite in order to use Figma, then suddenly the price of Figma goes through the roof for millions of users. So that's a clear consumer harm. Is Adobe signaling that that's what they're going to do? Is that what they're expected to do? I have no idea. what. No, They haven't said what they're expected to do. But the point is they have that pricing power now that they didn't have before. That is more interesting, I think, or more clear-cut as an antitrust than, say, Facebook buying up Instagram and WhatsApp. Because the catch there was always, well, consumers aren't harmed because these are free services, so it doesn't really matter. And then you had to make this kind of esoteric argument around that. Yeah. Also, just to be clear, like Lena Khan has very explicitly said that consumer harm should not be the be all and end all when it comes to antitrust. That's the kind of Borkian view that she is pushing back against. And she's saying like there are other reasons to prevent monopolies, especially monopolies growing via acquisition, even if you can't prove consumer harm. But has she successfully wielded that argument yet? Or has it's just in you know, research paper form still. Right, yeah. We haven't seen her wield that argument in a way that has gone through court and she has won. But I feel like this is one of the cases where she might want to try. I think we should have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number? Yes. Uh, My number is 40, and it's a percentage. And I learned today from the New York Times that 40% of young people now use TikTok for search instead of actual search. (laughs) Which I mean, makes it's, me it's as so well as, old. right? It's not like they literally never used Google. No, there's Google. A, a Google uh, executive who said he thought that that was the ratio. I think he's talking about very young users, but it's it's still, like, I can't fathom, and, and I'm old, you know, <laughs> I can't fathom using TikTok as a, as a search mechanism. We are entering a post-literate age, Elizabeth. <laughs> if, if you can, uh, although the fact is, if you're searching on TikTok, the way you search on TikTok is by writing a word into the search field like you can't you can't search on i don't know it's weird i've seen talk about this too i do think that people find information broadly yeah and i could see like if you wanted a cooking video or something like using it for that i just think 90 percent of the stuff that i search like information wouldn't even be on tiktok you know yeah you're too old for that (laughs) i have to say I, i made a cocktail last night that i found on tiktok and it was delicious what was, what was it? So it's a dirty martini, and instead of using olive brine, you use basically MSG that you've dissolved in water. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's a much sort of cleaner version of a dirty martini. It's really nice. <laughs> a clean that dirty sounds like martini. a David Chain kind it's of a clean, thing. It, it's a clean dirty martini, yeah. My number is 24.2 billion which is the number of dollars that were lent to people buying now and paying later in 2021, which is up like 
8x over two years. This is from a new report from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, basically looking into the whole BNPL industry. There were 180 million loans. On average, they were $135, and the total was $24 billion. So on the one hand, it sounds like a lot. But on the other hand, like, you know, again, if you compare it to the amount of money that people put on their credit cards every day, I don't think it's huge. Yeah, I think the the problem is, though, with a lot of the afterpay services, the credit standards are so much lower. So people get themselves into debt at an earlier stage or with fewer conditions. I mean, these things are all underwritten by underwriters. The credit losses on BNPL have not been big. One of the positives that the BNPL companies try to talk about, and I think this is real, is that if you don't really have a credit file and you haven't been able to access credit, then being able to buy something for 100 bucks on BNPL and pay it off over four installments is a good way of actually building up your credit. So yeah, like on the one hand, like if you don't have a credit file, then you're, I guess you could say that's a lower standard, but that's kind of also a good thing to be able to get people to build credit that way. Yeah, that's true. Emily, do you have a number? Yes, my number is 15,001. Ooh, I like that number. It's the lower bound dollar value of Janet Yellen's stamp collection. (laughs) (laughs) The Janet Yellen stamp collection. This is our colleague, Neil Owens. It's all his fault. It's all his fault. Years ago, he wrote about this. Janet Yellen has a stamp collection that passed down from her mother that's valued between $15,001 and $50,000. And she declares this because she's a good steward. And Neil Irwin wrote about it years ago in the Washington Post. And since then, Janet Yellen has become the Treasury Secretary. And when she travels, other world leaders want to give her gifts. They all believe that she's into stamps, so a lot of them give her stamps. (laughs) But as it turns out, and this is a story reported this week in the Wall Street Journal, as it turns out, Janet Yellen is more interested in rocks. (laughs) (laughs) But the weird thing is, whether she's given a rock or whether she's given a stamp, like she doesn't get to keep it either way. Janet Yellen sounds like seven-year-old me. <laughs> the stamp collection and the rec collection. Yes, she said there's a quote in the piece where she's less interested in stamps. She just doesn't have time for Felix, help me out. Philately? Philately. Philately. She doesn't have time for philately because she, she, all her she's time not and attention philatelic. goes to finance. <laughs> she's not philatelic, yes. So don't give Janet Yellen a stamp. You know who famously spent every waking hour devoted to finance? It was Bill Gross of PIMCO, who was also. <laughs> one of the biggest stamp collectors ever. I bet his stamps are worth way more than $50,000. His, his yeah, he sold a bunch of them at auction, but I think he was one of the few people to put together a full collection of every U.S. stamp ever issued. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that almost <laughs> makes me interested in stamp collecting, almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> you need to be very rich to do that. On which note, I think we're going to wrap it up for this week, unless you're a Slate Plus listener, in which case you will get an extra treat. Thank you very much to Jessamine Molly for producing and to everyone, really, who's writing in SlateMoney at Slate.com. Keep the emails coming. We love them. We will be back next week with even more Slate Money.
Let's talk about what I call CSAs and what Emily calls farm shares. And mm -hmm. if I'm basically getting this right, what you do is you sign up with local farmers mm -hmm. who produce various different crops over the course of the year. And mm -hmm. whatever they produce, they divvy up between their customers and you get whatever you get and whatever they grew. Mm -hmm. And obviously at the late summer, you get big boxes of delicious things. And in the middle of April, you get tiny little bits of kale and you're like, what am I meant to do with this? <laughs> and that's your way of supporting farmers and being close to the land. And I guess your question, Emily, is like, is this good? Is that the question? <laughs> question? Well, I mean, we belong to a CSA and we pay for it at the beginning of the summer. I never remember how much we paid for it. And then every week we get all these mostly vegetables that I would probably never buy if I just went to the supermarket. And then right. I feel this like crazed pressure to cook all the vegetables. Right. They always send a note like, this week is beets and you can use the beet greens and this week is carrots and you can use the carrot greens. And I'm always like, you know what? I'm not. And I just clip them off and I throw them in the compost. And then I'm like, wait, am I spending hundreds of dollars for compost? Like what is happening? You know? And then I wonder, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's probably good because I'm supporting the farmers, like you said, but I live in Westchester and these farmers I think are kind of raking it in. I don't know. So, so this is just yeah. on my mind, Felix, you know? So, okay. So, I see that something <laughs> super fascinating going on here, I have to say. And this is why I really love this subject. Um, it gets you out of the standard American zone of first you work out what you want to eat and then you uh -huh. buy the ingredients. Yes. And it forces you into a much less common zone of first you get your ingredients and then you work out how you're going to cook them. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that is true. And you wind up with a pile of turnips and you're like, what on earth am I meant to do with a pile of turnips? Because yes. like, frankly, there's not a lot you can do with a pile of turnips. And it can be a bit annoying. And when you can't work out what to do with them, you feel like you're an inadequately inventive cook and you feel mm -hmm. terrible about that. And or the food goes to waste and or you don't use the greens attached to the beets. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It creates pressure because you have food which arrives in quantities that you don't entirely know how much to expect and then you're like oh my god how am i going to cook this all and sometimes mm -hmm. it's too much and then often it's not enough and it's a form of stress which i guess <laughs> was incredibly common in the pre-industrial era and we should yes. just we should just stress ourselves in no, pre-industrial no, ways stress, though. because because pre-industrial stresses are awesome and ask anyone who goes to the gym that like you know that that's what you want is to just replicate the movements of farmers because the old farmers in the 19th century were all really fit or something i don't know where i'm going yeah this, this is luxury stress though <laughs> I, i've never had a csa box that wasn't slightly expensive and delivered me an obscene amount of kohlrabi which i have no idea <laughs> what I'm to do with frantically googling kohlrabi recipe and not and not on tiktok because i'm old i'm doing it on on google <laughs> so um, i think should be doing uh, it on tiktok i think Maybe. this is our prescription to you emily now that we're now that we're hitting peak csa box season you know this is this is when all the tomatoes are coming in and everything next time you get a box mm -hmm. search on tiktok and let <laughs> us know what let us know what comes up and it might it, okay. you might be pleasantly surprised Okay. I like that. Um, this week was very easy and I haven't had to do Googling. It was like apples and basil. So I'm good. This week was fine. <laughs> okay. But earlier in the season, there's some weird cabbages I never know what to do with. There's a lot of different <laughs> kinds of cabbages in this, in this here life. All right. So question, 
what the hell am I meant to do with my CSA box? Answer, TikTok search it. <laughs> you know? We, we are nothing if not servicey here on Slate Plus. <laughs> Thanks, Slate Plus.